Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's a great pleasure to have William Dalrymple here, who is one of our most gifted travel writers today. He will be talking about his latest book and will be signing later on from the Holy Mountain. It is his extraordinary journey, which really begins in AD around 500, which he takes off from a monk's musings, journeyings, thoughts, and travels along the same path, same places, taking him to Ravish Beirut, to eastern Turkey, to some of the wilder zones of Syria. It's a very exciting journey. It's also a very historically correct and documented journey. William Dronable has the amazing capacity to combine popular narrative with great scholarship, which makes him such a thrilling writer to read. And it's a great pleasure to have him here. So can I give, give you William Dorimple? Where does historically correct come in in relation to politically correct? <laughs> I'll just start off by reading the opening um, of the book and then go on to the um, lecture. The Monastery of Aviron, Mount Athos, Greece, 29th of June, 1994. My cell is bare and austere. It has white walls and a flagstone floor. Only two pieces of furniture break the severity of its emptiness. In one corner stands an olive wood writing desk, in another an iron bedstead. The latter is covered with a single white sheet, starched as stiff as a nun's wimple. Through the open window, I can see a line of black habits, the monks at work in the vegetable garden, a monastic chain gang hoeing the cabbage patch before the sun sets, and the wooden simandrum calls them in for prayers. Beyond the garden is a vineyard, silhouetted against the bleak black pyramid of the holy mountain. All is quiet now but for the breaking, distant breaking of surf on the jetty and the faint echo and clatter of metal plates in the monastery kitchens. The silence and solemnity of the place is hardly designed to raise the spirits, but you could hardly find a better place to order your mind. There are no distractions and the monastic silence imposes its own brittle clarity. It's now nine o'clock. The time has finally come to concentrate my thoughts, to write down as simply as I can what has brought me here, what I have seen, and what I hope to achieve in the next few months. Open on my desk is the paperback translation of the spiritual meadow of John Moscus, the unlikely little book which first brought me to this monastery, and the original manuscript of which I saw for the first time less than an hour ago. God willing, John Moscus will lead me on eastward to Constantinople and Anatolia then southwards to the Nile, and thence, if it is still possible, to the great cargo oasis, once the southern frontier of Byzantium. In the spring of 578 AD, had you been sitting on a bluff of rock overlooking Bethlehem, you would have been able to see two figures setting off, staff in hand, 
from the gates of the great desert monastery of St. Theodosius. The two figures, an old grey-bearded monk, accompanied by a tall, upright, perhaps slightly stern younger companion, would have headed off southeast through the wastes of Judea towards the then fabulously rich port metropolis of Gaza. It was the start of an extraordinary 40-year journey that would take John Moscus and his pupil, Sophronius the Sophist, in an arc across the entire Byzantine world, from the shores of the Bosphorus to the sand dunes of desert Egypt. Now, Byzantine caravanserais were rough places, and the provincial Greek aristocracy did not like entertaining. As the Byzantine writer Cacaminus put it, house parties are a mistake, for guests merely criticize your housekeeping and attempt to seduce your wife. So everywhere they went, the two travelers stayed in some of the thousands of monasteries, caves, and remote hermitages which then littered the Middle East. There they dined with the monks and the ascetics. In each abbey, Moscus jotted down onto papyrus accounts that he had heard of the sayings of the Stylites and the Desert Fathers, the sages and mystics of the Byzantine East, before this world, clearly on the verge of collapse, finally disappeared forever. Later, Exiled in Constantinople, Moscus wrote an account of his travels entitled The Spiritual Meadow, and the book generated an ecstatic reception across the Byzantine Empire. Within a generation or two, it had been translated into Latin, Georgian, Armenian, Arabic, and a variety of Slavonic languages. It was the greatest travel bestseller in Byzantine history. Now, to us, the world described by John Moscus is not just odd. Its beliefs and values are so weird as to be virtually incomprehensible. It was a world where eunuchs led the imperial armies into battle, where groups of Essex monks were known to lynch and murder pagan ladies as they went through the bazaars of Alexandria uh, in their litters, where ragged, half-naked stylites raved atop their pillars, and where the dendrites took literally Christ's instructions to behave like the birds of the air, and who therefore lived in trees and built little nests for themselves in the branches. Yet for all this, there is a great deal in the period and in the ideals of Moscus's monks that are deeply attractive. A religious tradition which aims at the purification of the soul through the taming of the flesh, where the material world is pulled aside like a great heavy curtain to allow man's gaze to go straight to God. Moreover, the monasteries where the spiritual warfare took place were fortresses that preserved everything that had been salvaged from the wreck of classical antiquity. So that that's so preserving the learning of classical civilization from the encroaching barbarism. Moscow's spiritual meadow has an attractive scholar-gypsy feel to it, and there is an endearing lightness of touch and sense of humor evident in the stories. One typical tale, one of my favorites, contains a story about a novice from Antinui in Upper Egypt. When the novice dies, his teacher is worried that he might have been sent to hell for his sins. So he prays that he might have a, a vision and it should be revealed to him what has happened to his pupil's soul. Eventually the teacher goes into a trance and sees a river of fire with the, novices, with the novice submerged in it up to his neck. The teacher's horrified, but the novice turns to him saying, I thank God, O oh my teacher, that there is relief for my head. Thanks to your prayers, I'm standing on the head of a bishop. <laughs> But reading between the lines, these were clearly dangerous times. The empire was under assault from the west, from Slavs, Goths, and Lombards, 
Well, on the east, you had the whole fabric cracking under raids by desert nomads and the legions of Sasanian Persia. In 614, Moschus' own home monastery in St. Theodosius was burnt to the ground by the Persian army, and all their brethren, hundreds of unarmed monks, were put to the sword. Nevertheless, when John Moschus died in 619, the empire still ruled, however shakily, from Venice to southern Egypt. But Moschus' companion, Sophronius, would live to see this entire eastern empire fragment and collapse. In his old age, Sophronius was appointed Patriarch of Jerusalem, and it was left to him to defend the holy city against the first great army of Islam as it swept up from Arabia. Now, the Arabs were not very good at siegecraft. When outside Damascus, they had to borrow a ladder from a monastery <coughs> to get over the walls. But with the imperial legions already ambushed on the banks of the Amuk, there was no prospect of relief, and the situation was hopeless. On February day in AD 638, after a siege lasting 12 months, the Caliph Omar entered Jerusalem, riding upon a white camel. Sophronius handed over to him the keys of the city, and through his tears was heard to murmur, Behold the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He died heartbroken a few months later. He was buried in the monastery of St. Theodosius, and beside him, in the next niche in the crypt, was laid the body of John Moschus. Even a century ago, over a quarter of the population of the Levant was still Christian. In a town like Istanbul, that proportion rose to nearly 60%. But the 20th century, with its wars and nationalisms, have ended those centuries of coexistence. Today, the Christians are leaving en masse. They're a small minority of 14 million struggling to keep afloat amid 180 million non-Muslims, non-Christians. Their numbers reduced annually through emigration. In the last 20 years, two million have left the Middle East to make new lives for themselves in Australia, Europe, and America. There are now more Jerusalem-born Christians living in Sydney than in Jerusalem. And those that remain could be flown out in just nine jumbo jets. <coughs> this matters because Christianity is not a Western religion. It was not founded in Rome. Sorry, it was not founded in London, however much the Victorians like to believe that God was an Englishman, nor in Rome. It was born in Jerusalem and received its intellectual superstructure in Antioch, Damascus, Constantinople, and Alexandria. Those Eastern Christians who are now leaving the Middle East preserve many of the most ancient liturgies, superstitions, and traditions which holds the key to understanding early Christianity, without which we can never really understand the roots of our own um, Christian-based culture. Without the local Christian population, the most important and most ancient shrines in the Christian world will be left as museum pieces, preserved only for the curiosity of tourists. Christianity will no longer exist in the Holy Land as living faith. A vast vacuum will lie at the heart of Christendom. Yet despite this gloomy picture, a surprising number of the monasteries visited by Moschus and Sophronius still just survive. Like timeless islands of Byzantium with their bells and black robes and candlelit processions, they are still occupied with elderly monks whose heavily whiskered faces mirror those of the frescoed saints on the monastery walls. The monks' vestments remain unchanged since Byzantine times. The same icons are still painted in the same way. Even the superstitions remain unchanged. Relics of the true cross and the virgin's tears are still venerated. 
demons and devils lie in wait outside every monastery wall. Only last year, there was great excitement in the Coptic quarter in Cairo, when Our Lady was clearly seen floating over the domes of the Coptic cathedral. Today, sitting under a candlelit iconostasis, listening to plain chant, still sung in the language of 6th century Byzantium, it is still just possible to forget the intervening millennia and to feel that the lifeline of tones and syllables, fears and hopes, linking us with the time of John Moscus is still intact. The oldest manuscript of the spiritual meadow can be found today in the monastery of Aviron on Mount Athos. Last, in June 1994, I set off to spend six months circling the Levant, from Athos to the monasteries of southern Egypt, following very roughly in John Moscus's footsteps to discover what was left, intent on seeing the last twilight of Byzantium before its sun finally set. Now, um, Athos is the last Byzantine republic to survive into the 20th century. The first monastery on the mountain was founded in the 9th century AD by St. Euthemius of Salonica, who, having forsworn the world at the age of 18, took to moving around on all fours and eating grass. So renowned was the holiness of this great saint that 20 other monasteries soon sprang up around the original foundation. Now, all was well until it reached the years of the Byzantine emperor that the monks were in the habit of debauching the beautiful daughters of the shepherds who came to the mountain ostensibly to sell wool and milk. Thereafter, it was decreed that nothing female, no cow, no mare, no hen, could set step within its limits. So it's remained. Athos is still much as it was in the days of St. Euthemius. Byzantine time is still kept, there is no electricity, and the monks still eat, sleep, and pray beneath ancient frescoes. But getting to see my manuscript in the Viron was a little bit more difficult. It's a very eccentric place, um, and it's a major struggle getting in um, because, first of all, Father Christophoros, the charming but totally clueless librarian, uh, had lost his keys. And when he found them, there was total chaos inside. Um, disordered books, priceless manuscripts lying around. And it soon became clear that Christophoros had no idea what was actually on his shelves uh, and had lost his index. So I walked up uh, 10 miles to Carriers, which is the uh, capital of Athos. Um, and with its one phone box and one restaurant, it's really the kind of Las Vegas of, of the Holy Mountain. Uh, borrowed enough drachma pieces to make an urgent phone call to a don in Cambridge and eventually discovered the right manuscript number, MS Georgian 9. Um, and I walked back, um, got in, unlocked all the bolts with a huge bunch of keys like a medieval jailer. I'll just read you the extract of what transpired next. Three locks had now opened without a problem, and eventually, with a loud creak, the fourth gave way too. The old library door swung open, and with the lamps held aloft, we stepped inside. Within it was pitch dark. A strong odour of old buckram and rotting vellum filled the air. Manuscripts lay open in low cabinets, gold leaf of illuminated letters, and gilt halos from illustrations of saints' lives, shining out in the light of the lantern. In the gloom, on the far wall, I could just see a framed Ottoman firman, the curving gilt of the Sultan's monogram clearly visible above the lines of calligraphy. Next to it, like a discarded suit jacket, hung a magnificent but rather crumpled silk coat. C confronted dragons and phoenixes were emblazoned down either side of the lapel. 
What is a Tylithid? It's John Zemiskis's coat. The Emperor John Zemiskis, but he lived in the 10th century. Christopher shrugged his shoulders. But you just can't leave something like that hanging up there, I said. <laughs> well, said Christopher irritably, where else would you put it? <laughs> <laughs> in the gloom, we found our way past rank after rank of shelves, groaning with leather bound Byzantine manuscripts, before drawing to a halt in front of a cabinet at the far corner of the room. Christophorus unlocked and opened the glass covering. Codex G9 was on the bottom shelf, wrapped in a white canvas satchel. It was a huge volume, as heavy as a crate of wine, and I staggered over to the reading desk with it, while Christophorus followed with the lamp. Forgive me, he said, as I lowered the volume onto a desk. But are you orthodox or heretic? <laughs> I considered for a second before answering. A Catholic friend who'd visited Athos a few years previously had warned me above all never to admit being a Catholic. He had made this mistake and said that had he admitted to suffering from leprosy or tertiary syphilis, he could not have been more resolutely shunned than he had been after this admission. He told me that in my case it was particularly important uh, not to raise the monk's suspicions, as they've learnt to distrust above all their visitors those who ask to see their manuscripts. They have long memories on Athos, and if the monks have never forgiven the papacy for authorizing the ransacking of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade over 800 years ago, they've certainly not forgotten the 19th century bibliophiles who decimated the libraries of Athos only a century ago. So noticing my silence, Christophorus asked again, what was I, orthodox or heretic? I'm a Catholic, I replied. My God, said the monk, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he shook his head in solicitude. To be honest with you, he said, the abbot never gives permission for non-Orthodox to look at our holy books, particularly Catholics. The abbot thinks the present pope is the Antichrist and his mother is the whore of Babylon. He says they're now bringing about the last days spoken of by St. John in the book of Revelation. Christophorus murmured a prayer. Please, he said, don't ever tell anyone in the monastery you're a heretic. If the abbot ever found out, I'd be made to perform a thousand prostrations. I won't tell a soul. <laughs> Christophorus relaxed slightly, took off his glasses to polish them on the front of his habit. You know, we actually had another heretic in the monastery earlier this year. Who was that, I asked. He was a choir master from Bavaria, said Christophorus. He had a beautiful voice. I eased the book onto the writing stand and began to unbutton its canvas cover. He said our church had wonderful acoustics, continued Christophorus, arranging the lamps on the desk. So he asked Father Yakovos if, if he could sing a Gloria inside the church under the dome. What did Father Yakovos say? He said that he didn't think he could let a heretic pray inside the church, but just this once he let him sing a little Alleluia in the porch. <laughs> I'd now got the protective covering off, and the beautifully worked leather binding gleamed golden in the light of the lantern. I opened the cover. Inside the text was written in purple ink on the finest vellum, strong, supple, and waxy, but so thin as to be virtually translucent. The calligraphy was a beautifully clear and cursive form of early medieval Georgian, and according to the library's detailed catalogue, the volume uh, had bound together a number of different early Byzantine devotional texts. The first folio I opened was apparently a shrill sermon by St. Jerome denouncing what he considered to be the thoroughly pagan practice of taking baths. He who has bathed in Christ, fumed the saint, does not need a second bath. <laughs> Only towards the end of the uh, folio 287 verso did I come to the opening lines of the text, 
I'd come so far to see. Its author was the great Byzantine traveller monk, John Moscus, and the book had been compiled at the end of his life as he prepared for death in a monastery in Constantinople 1,300 years previously. In my opinion, the meadows in spring present a particularly delightful prospect, he wrote. One part of this meadow blushes out with roses. In another place, lilies predominate. In another, violets blaze out, resembling the imperial purple. Think of this present work in the same way. Sophronius, my faithful and sacred child. For among the holy men, monks, and hermits of the empire, I have plucked the finest flowers from the unmown meadow and worked them into a crown, which I now offer to you, most faithful child, and through you to the, to the world at large. Turning up a lamp, I opened a fresh page. Anyway, from Athos, I went to Istanbul, what was once the greatest bastion of Christianity against Islam. For 1,000 years, it withstood repeated sieges by Arabs, Persians, and Turks. It is now 99% Muslim. Very f this is a very new development. As late as 1955, there were still 100,000 Greeks in Istanbul. But following a bloody anti-Greek pogrom in 1955, the biggest race riot in Europe since the Second World War, and a continued series of shootings and bombings on Greek churches, very few Greeks now wish to remain, and the younger generation are all emigrating. Whoops, <laughs> sorry, making me burping. Only 500 are left, and they will probably have gone by the end of the next decade. The recent electoral success of, Mus of the Muslim fundamentalist welfare party uh, is only likely to speed up that process. Already in Turkish law, it's forbidden for Christians to build new churches or to open schools and seminaries. So it's impossible to train or ordain new priests, monks, um, and they're all getting older and older. The remaining monasteries on the Prince's Islands, just off the coast, are being abandoned one by one. The Greek patriarch, the primus inter pares of Eastern Christendom, can barely fill the first three rows in his cathedral. Now, in uh, Moscus's day, Constantinople was clearly a much more lively place. Um, and uh, the best way of illustrating that is perhaps to read a little extract from Procopius, The, sacred, uh, the Secret History. This gives a very subversive picture of, of what Constantinople was like during the time of John Moscus. Its author, Procopius, was the sort of uh, official court sycophant, uh, and he wrote several volumes uh, of uh, sort of oily, um, oleaginous sort of praise to Justinian and Theodora. And he did this for years and years, and finally, obviously, the pressure got too much. And in his old age, he wrote the secret history, the true story. Um, which was never um, released until after his death. <coughs> and that paints a very pic different picture altogether. <coughs> this is his description of Theodora. The empress in her youth was not even a flautist or a harpist. She was not even qualified to join the corps of dancers. She merely sold her attractions to anyone who came along, putting her whole body at their disposal. There was not a particle of modesty in the little hussy, and no one who saw her, was, no one ever saw her taken aback. She complied with the most outrageous demands without the slightest hesitation. And she was not the sort of girl who, if anyone walloped her, boxed her ears, would make a jest of it and roar with laughter. And she would throw off her clothes and exhibit naked to one and all those regions, both in front and behind, which the rules of decency required to be kept veiled and hidden from masculine eyes. She used to, I mean, it gets better and better. She used to tease her lovers and keep them waiting. And by constantly playing about with novel methods of intercourse, she could bring the most lascivious to their feet. So far from being waited to, so far from waiting to be invited 
by anyone she encountered. She herself, by cracking dirty jokes and wiggling her hips, suggestively would invite all who came her way. This is the Empress of Byzantium. Right, <laughs> <laughs> anyone who came her way, especially if they were in their teens. <laughs> Never was anyone given so completely to unlimited self-indulgence. Often she would go to a bring-your-own-food dinner party with ten young men or more, all at the peak of their physical powers, and with fornication as their chief object in life. And she would lie with her fellow diners in turn the whole night long. And when she'd reduced them all to a state of utter exhaustion, she would go to their menials, as many as thirty on one occasion, and copulate with every one of them. But not even then could she satisfy her lust. It goes on for about five pages. <laughs> I'll read you one more paragraph, and we'll go back to monks. <laughs> Often in the theatre, in the full view of people, she would throw off her clothes and stand naked in their midst, having only a girdle about her private parts. Um, not, however, because she was ashamed to expose these to the public, but because no one is allowed to appear there absolutely naked. A girdle round the groins is compulsory. With this minimum covering, she would spread herself out and lie upwards on the floor. Servants on whom this task had been imposed would sprinkle barley grains over her private parts, and geese, trained for the purpose, would pick them off one by one with their bills and swallow them. <laughs> <laughs> back, back to chastity. <laughs> because of the uh, eviction of the Greeks from Anatolia in 1922 and the massacre of the Armenians in 1916, if today you want to see any living monasteries in Turkey, uh, you have to go to the far southeast, to what used to be called Kurdistan, to the Turabdin, the Hill of Slaves. Um, they warn you quite um, volubly about going there in Istanbul. And the day before I left, my hotel receptionist memorably twirled his moustache and said, watch out, Kurdistan is like a cucumber. Today in your hand, tomorrow up your ass." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in this... <laughs> in the Turabdi, the last Christian community of any size to survive within Turkey... Um, can be found. They speak Aramaic, the language of Christ, and they worship in very grand early Christian monasteries, which date, in many cases, uh, less than four centuries after Christ's death. Um, and they were founded and built under the direct patronage of the Byzantine emperors. Now, the situation there is very bad indeed. There's not a, in any way a concentrated attempt to drive out the uh, Syriani because they are Christian, but they've been caught in the middle of the Turkish-Kurdish civil war. They got caught in the crossfire. Um, at the moment, was, or rather when I was there in 94, 60 people a day were being killed. Um, and the Turkish army had replied to the Kurdish guerrilla campaign by a policy of burnt earth. They just cleared out all the villages in remote areas so that the guerrillas would have nowhere to find shelter and food. And for miles and miles in southeast Turkey in this area where the PKK are centered, um, you just see mile after mile of burnt down olive grove, these stumps looking like something out of a kind of Paul Nash picture of the Somme. It's very eerie. In um, the last five years, 1,000 villages have been cleared. And these, not by deliberate design, but, but nonetheless, have included nearly all the Christian villages. Uh, as a result of which, only 500 Syriacs are now left, where uh, as recently as 1960, there were about um, certainly 15,000. Um, it's a very dirty war, and 50 Kurdish journalists have been murdered or disappeared in the course of the last five years. When I was in Diyarbakir, a local Kurdish newspaper editor had a mysterious tumble from the roof of his office. 
situation was so tense that newspapers could only be bought from police stations. Um, the Christians are caught in the middle of all this. And um, it's quite scary to visit the area, not just because um, of the actual crossfire and, and landmines on the road. Most worrying of all is the fact that if you are caught by the PKK, as happened to a group of trans-Asian cyclists the year before me, um, the PKK can't, although they treat their people well when they, if you get kidnapped, they can't light fires, as this um, shows their position to the Turkish army at night. So the, the bicyclists the year before me uh, had to eat raw snake and hedgehog for four months, which is what I was really worried about. Um, <laughs> snake tatar. Um, anyway, I eventually got through to Mar Gabriel, um, and there was rather a sort of gruesome uh, scene outside the front gates because a minibus had landed on a landmine uh, a few months before I got there, and there's still the charred remains still standing there outside the monastery gates. Um, and we were shadowed all the way by um, a car full of secret policemen. And as I turned up, they had this uh, kind of ridiculous sort of succession of uh, sort of intimidating tactics. First of all, um, a whole bunch of rather sort of unlikely-looking, three unlikely-looking large Turkish tourists turned up. It was only when their um, walkie-talkies started crackling in their back pockets that it became clear that they were secret policemen. Then the army decided to do a series of manoeuvres in front of the monastery just to make the point that uh, they knew what was going on. They didn't want <coughs> to keep an eye on what was going on. And so five jeeps full of troops turned up and started doing manoeuvres in the olive groves in front. But actually inside this um, wasteland, inside the monastery walls, is an unbelievable 5th century monastery. It's founded by the Emperor Arcadius in the 490s. In other words, 80 years before St. Augustine brought uh, Christianity to Britain. Uh, golden mosaics, extraordinary ancient Byzantine buildings. Um, and it's full of refugees now from the monasteries, uh, from the villages which have been cleared in the surrounding mountains. One very sad old priest um, had said that he'd, his village had been cleared and the whole place burnt just a few months before. He'd had a nervous breakdown. He said he couldn't start again, he couldn't forget, and he, he sort of burst into tears when he started talking about it. It was a very sad and very um, upsetting place to visit. The reason there are Syriacs there at all, because during the First World War, um, when the Armenians were massacred, the Syriacs took precautions. And before the opening of the First World War, they realized what was happening, what was uh, coming. And they built a series of fortified churches, which they managed to defend throughout the um, course of the war. Most notable being the, um, the Church of Ein Wado, um, which I visited. And I met one old monk who'd been besieged in there during the First World War. He's now 80. And he had gruesome tales to tell of, of um, all villages clearing themselves out, 20 families in every, um, living in every house in the village. 12,000 Ottoman troops and 13,000 Kurdish irregulars surrounding this place. Um, and you know, by the end, classic sort of siege stuff, they're all eating rats. But they survived. And that is why, to this day, you still find this Christian pocket in southeast Turkey, when all the Armenians, uh, all the um, Greeks, who for centuries were a quarter of the population, at least in that part of the world, have gone. Anyway, this last Christian pocket will no doubt disappear within the next 10 years. There's only 500 left. Um, from there, I went to uh, Antakya, which is the ancient Antioch. Um, and the reason that I went there is John Mosca spends a lot of time in that area visiting stylites, these strange 
saints who clambered on top of pillars. Um, they were once very fashionable in Antioch, and it, to visit a skylight was a popular afternoon's outing for the smart and pious ladies of Byzantine Antioch. Just outside the city still lies the, what's called the Wonderful Mountain, where St. Simeon Stylites the Younger, the greatest showman of the lot, uh, set up his pillar. It's really like a kind of Christian version of an oracle. The church was oriented not towards the altar and towards God, but back, uh, sort of centrally, towards this grotesque figure at the back of the nave on his pillar. Um, moreover, the church, which was built during the Stylites' lifetime, was magnificent. It was an absolutely sumptuous marble church. The Rolex are holding a hunger strike in the Ritz, who had this kind of curious, sort of ragged figure within, in sort of sackcloth on this rather sort of ritzy pillar in the middle of this uh, magnificent church. And Moskos tells a number of stories about this guy. Um, he was credited with sort of telepathy. Um, on one occasion, when Moskos was standing there, the monk shouted out from the top of his pillar to the back of the room and said, Bring me that man, bring a pair of shears, um, and torture him immediately, because he'd had some. Um, mystical uh, in information that this chap was a runaway monk. So this poor chap was hauled down to the base of the pillar and had his hair cut off and packed off to a monastery. On another occasion, according to Moskos, um, a man was um, slagging off the stylite at the back of the church, um, whereupon immediately his hand turned putrid and fell off. <laughs> it was only after begging at the base of the pillar that uh, St. Simon Stylites agreed to put it back on again. Um, also, it's quite clear from the account in Moscow that one of the worst dangers about being a stylite is not just the heat and the cold, but lightning. Uh, a great number <laughs> of the stylites who Moscow talks to then received a kind of uh, um, a lightning burst, which Moscow attributes to heresy. Um, unsurprisingly, the habit of uh, sitting on pillars did not outlast the Middle Ages, except in Georgia, uh, where it survived up to 18th century. But you'll be glad to hear that the Syrian Orthodox Church plans to bring it back. And the Metropolitan of Aleppo is raising a pillar in the middle of a new monastery uh, outside Aleppo, and he plans to have a relay of stylites on top. <laughs> Modern stilitism. Um, the best source for stylites is this extraordinary book called The History of the Monks of Syria by Theodoret of Cyrus, who was a contemporary of Moscus. And he was the kind of Kitty Kelly of Byzantine Syria. He went his way. He, the, the stylites were the kind of celebrities of their day. And Theodoret spent his life digging his way into hermitages, knocking down the doors of monks who'd walled themselves up, or suspended themselves in cages, or even sewed themselves up in skins so that they'd be baked alive in the sweltering Syrian midsummer heat, a sort of Byzantine boil-in-the-bag monk. Um, and um, Simeon makes it clear that you know, this was really a sort of big time, these guys. It was rather like sort of Van Morrison coming to hay. As, as St. Simeon's fame circulated, everyone hastened to him, not only the people of the neighborhood, but also people many months distant, some bringing the paralyzed in body, others requesting health to the sick, and they begged to receive from him what they could not receive from nature. So with everyone arriving from every side and every road resembling river, one can behold a sea of men standing in that place. Not only the inhabitants of our part of the world, but Ishmaelites, Persians, Armenians, and even the inhabitants of the extreme west, Spaniards, Britons, and Gauls. Of Italy it is superfluous to speak. It is said that the man became so celebrated in the great city of Rome that at the entrance to all the workshops, men have set up small representations of him to provide some sort of safety and protection for themselves. And things got 
quite desperate at some stages. There was such competition for relics. If you had a relic, you could attract all sorts of pilgrims to your cathedral. Um, and, you know, you became... Um, it was rather like having a... Um, it was rather like having Van Morrison at Hayes. I mean, you get twice... No one's come to speak to hear writers. Hang on. <laughs> get a good rock star and you double your numbers. And so um, Theodoret decided to go on a kind of preemptive strike. And as soon as any of the saints in the locality became ill, he would capture them by force um, and bring them to, Theod uh, to Thyrus so that he could have their uh, bones in his cathedral. But other people also had the same idea. And this is an account of a battle to try and uh, get the body of this poor saint who was dying. Um, when St. James of Cerestica uh, had uh, became ill, uh, many men from Cyrus came together from all sides to seize his body. And all the men of the town, when they heard of it, hastened together, soldiers and civilians, some taking up military equipment, other using what weapons lay to hand. Forming up in close order, they sh fought by shooting arrows and slinging stones, not to wound, but simply to instill fear. Having thus driven off the local inhabitants, they placed the saint in a, in a litter, while he was quite unconscious of what was happening, um, and he could not even uh, feel his hair being plucked out by peasants. Anyway, he, they set off to the city. Then the guy wakes up. Um, three day, after three days had passed, in the evening, he asked where he was. And being told he was extremely vexed, demanded to be taken back at once to his mountain. <laughs> There's this great competition, these guys. In Syria, there are not so many living monasteries these days. Um, one is Sednaya. Uh, where there's a shrine to the Virgin, um, where there's a famous image supposedly painted by St. Luke. And it's still a great center of pilgrimage. And it's a very interesting place because um, as many Muslims visit it as Christians, and this, of course, is an old tradition in, in that part of the world. During the Ottoman Empire, um, there is a terrific tradition of coexistence among the different religions in that part of the world. Multiculturalism, which we sort of hold up today as this uniquely Western ideal of different traditions all mingling together, was very much the way of life in the Ottoman Empire. Jews, Christians, different kinds of Christians, Muslims, would all live together. And you still find in places like Syria this tradition surviving. Um, and Christians and Muslims come in equal numbers to the shrine. Um, and barren women spend a night in front of the altar and supposed to conceive miraculously. Not a hasten to, uh, to add because of any kind of monkly intervention. Um, but, uh, but through the workings of the miracle of the sacred icon. Um, and the most bizarre people turn up at this place. When I spent the night there, um, there was a picture in my guest room of uh, these astronauts. And uh, I asked, you know, um, what these guys were doing there. And it turns out they were Syrian astronauts who'd gone up to the space station Mir, uh, courtesy of the Russians. I said, why did they come here? Did, you know, were they giving the nuns a lecture on, on, on space station Mir? And the abbess looked at me with sort of um, horror. I said, no, no. They came here, brought a sheep, and slaughtered it for the virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Astronauts. Anyway, on to Palestine. In uh, Israel and the West Bank, the Christian presence is nearly extinguished. In 1922, when the British took over Palestine after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, Nearly a tenth of the population were Christian Arabs. They were wealthy and better educated than their Muslim counterparts and owned almost all the newspapers, filling a disproportionate number of the senior jobs in the mandate civil service. 
Now there are only 170,000 Christians left in Israel and the occupied territories. They're leaving fast, fleeing outright violence and hundred more subtle forms of oppression suffered by all Palestinians under Israeli rule. Forcible expropriation of vast tracts of church and private land, diversion of water from ancient Christian villages to the new Jewish settlements, imprisonment, torture, and deportation. Again, it's not specifically directed against the Christians. It's just directed against Palestinians, and the Christians get caught in the crossfire. Um, last year, Michel Saba, the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, issued a warning that by the turn of the century, Christianity may well have died out in the land of its birth. It's not, I don't think, going to happen so quickly as that, but it's unlikely to last another 20 years. Um, decline and demoralization is particularly visible in the monasteries. You have a series of the most magnificent monasteries um, in the world, um, in these strange desert craggy passes, and they're all nearly empty. Um, St. Theodosius, which is John Moscus's old monastery, once had 400 monks. It's now got one. St. George Wadi Kelt's got two. Used to have about, um, used to have four or five hundred. Uh, Dauka and St. Gerasmus, both with two or three hundred originally, have now also just got one left as a custodian. The only monastery which is still functioning as a monastery in the Holy Land um, is Marsaba, which has 15 monks and is still going strong. Um, they're a very eccentric bunch, however, and uh, particularly my friend Father Theophanes, the guest master. Um, I'll read you another little extract from about him. See that river down there at the bottom of the cliff, said Father Theophanes. Nowadays it's just sewage from Jerusalem. But on Judgment Day, that's where the river of blood is going to flow. It's going to be full of Freemasons, whores and heretics, Protestants, schismatics, Jews, Catholics, more Uzo. Please. The monk poured a thimbleful of spirit into a small glass. When I gulped it down, he continued with his apocalypse. At the head of the damned will be a troop composed of all the popes of Rome, followed by their deputies, the vice presidents of the Freemasons. <laughs> You're saying the popes are Freemasons? A Freemason, he's the president of the Freemasons. <laughs> Everyone knows this. Each morning he worships the devil in the form of a naked woman with the head of a goat. <laughs> Actually, I said, uh, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> then, said Father Theophanes, unless you convert to orthodoxy, you will follow your pope down that valley through the scorching fire. We will watch you from this balcony, he added. <laughs> but of course, by then, it'll be too late to save you. <laughs> Masaba was once famous for its scholarship, but you'd never guess that talking to the monks today. So, you're a writer, are you, said Father Theophanes, when he brought me my supper on a tray at the end of Vespers. I've stopped reading books myself. The divine liturgy contains all the theology I need. Once you've read the word of God, I can't see the point of reading anything else. Ah, but they say books are like food, pointed out Father Evdokimos, the deputy abbot. They feed your brain. But Father, said Father Theophanes quietly, monks should try to eat as little as possible. <laughs> <laughs> it was nearly dark. As we talked, Theophanes took out a box of matches and began to light a pair of battered old paraffin storm lanterns. There's no electricity in Marsaba. What did you do before you became a monk, I asked Theophanes, as he sat trimming the wicks. I was a policeman in Athens. I came here for the first time on pilgrimage. As soon as I saw this monastery, I recognized it as my true home. Since then, I've been back only once, but I hardly recognized my old city. There were so many new buildings, new buildings and new crimes. Being a monk must have been quite a change from your previous work. Not so different, replied the monk. 
demons are very like criminals. <laughs> both are very stupid. Both are damned. Over the course of the week, Tavate Fani's raved on intermittently about the Freemasons, how they'd masterminded the ecumenical movement and invented the supermarket barcode. But <laughs> there was something in The Guardian last week. There was, a, there was a procession in Athens about people protesting against the barcode, saying that it was the invention of the devil. So it isn't just Father Theophanes this thing. But it was only towards the end of my stay that I finally plucked up the courage to ask Father Theophanes why he was so worried about the Freemasons. Because, he replied, they are the legions of the Antichrist. But I always thought Freemasons just had coffee mornings and bridge evenings and that sort of thing. Bridge evenings, said Father Theophanes, pronouncing the word as if it was some sort of satanic ritual. Maybe also this bridge. But their main activity is to worship the devil. There are many steps, he said, nodding knowingly. But the last, the final step, is to meet the devil and have homosexual relations with him. <laughs> After that, he makes you pope. Or sometimes, <laughs> or sometimes, the president of the United States. <laughs> the president of the United States? Certainly. This has been proved. <laughs> All the presidents of the United States have been Freemasons, except Kennedy, and you know what happened to him. <laughs> Anyway, on to Egypt. Egypt uh, has got the largest Christian minority of any Middle Eastern country, and today there are 8 million Copts living in Egypt. They are the descendants of the ancient Egyptians. They've never married, intermarried with the Arabs, and for this reason they still preserve their distinctive physiognomy, the physiognomy of the ancient pharaohs. Copts are Monophysites, and thus in the eyes of Father Theophanes, they're damned. Um, I'm sure a view that John Moskos would have shared. But Copts are more, more immediate worry today isn't so much damnation as the fact that they're sporadically um, persecuted. They're protected by the government up to a point, but they're under bitter assault from the resurgent Muslim Brotherhood and the Gamat al-Islamiyah. Yet today, oddly enough, in the tense atmosphere, the Coptic monasteries have never been fuller. Um, just as the great blossoming of the monasteries in Eastern Christendom took place in the uncertain days the, of the end of uh, classical civilization. So now the Christian villages of Upper Egypt uh, are dying. Sorry, now is the Christian villages of Upper Egypt are dying and the monasteries are growing fuller than ever. Like the last bright flickerings in a long-lit lamp, Egyptian monasticism is undergoing what may well be its last ever spiritual renaissance. See the more optimistic side of things. Um, it's best to visit St. Anthony's in, upper, in uh, sorry, northern Egypt. It's the oldest monastery in the world, founded at the early 4th century when St. Anthony fled here to escape the attentions of a stream of admiring Greco-Roman intellectuals from Alexandria. Through no fault of his own, St. Anthony had become the darling of Alexandria's fashionable intelligentsia, who revered him for his earthly asceticism and his reputed power over demons. Like modern London literati falling over themselves to become biographers of first division footballers, the Alexandrian intellectual establishment turned up in streams at St. Anthony's cave causing the baffled hermits, who had initially retreated into the sand dunes with the express intention of avoiding uh, other human beings, um, to flee from his admirers further and further into the desert. So at each case, he'd set up hermitage in some very remote spot. He'd get a huge stream of uh, intellectuals from Alexandria coming to admire him, and off he'd go further into the desert. But eventually, when his fan club followed him even to the site of the present monastery, several weeks' camel caravan from the nearest town, the saint realized he was never going to shake off the attentions of his followers and decided instead to organize them into a loose-knit community 
while he kept watch over them from a cave a safe distance up the mountain. So was born monasticism. It was in this way that the very first monastery was founded. No one disputes Anthony's claim to be the oldest Christian monastery in the world, and the present buildings still show all the signs of being experimental prototypes. Anyone expecting to see the elegant cloisters of uh, Tintin or Lantony or Revo will be disappointed. Um, it's an amazing place because it is very much in a time warp, and it's full of contemporary miracle stories. Monks tell you about exorcisms, miraculous healings, and ghostly apparitions of long-dead saints. I, I remember one conversation with Abuna Dioscorus, the guest master. See up there, he said, in June 1987, between those two towers on the Abbey Church, uh, our father St. Anthony appeared, hovering there in a cloud of shining light. You saw this, I asked? No, no, said Father Dioscorus, I'm short-sighted. He took off his spectacles to show me the thickness of the glass. I could barely see the abbot at supper when I sit beside him. But many other fathers saw the apparition. On one side of St. Anthony stood St. Mark the Hermit, and on the other was Abuna Justus. Abuna Justus? He's one of our fathers, used to be the sacristan. So what was he doing up there? He just departed this life. Officially, he's not a saint yet, you understand, but I'm sure he will be one soon. And then he said, but you won't believe this. And I thought, you know, what's coming next? Flying nuns or levitating relics? But you won't believe this but we had visitors from Europe two years ago, Protestants, who said they didn't believe a word of this. <laughs> What's very interesting also is the link between this Coptic monasticism and the, and the Celtic monasticism in Ireland. Um, all over Scotland and Ireland, you find uh, carvings, Pictish carvings of St. Anthony. Uh, and he was very much the model for the Celtic monks but there's very good evidence that he was, there was in fact a direct link between these two uh, monastic outposts. The Book of Kells Madonna seems to be almost certainly modelled on a Coptic original. And there's literary evidence of strong links. Um, the Life of St. John the Almsgiver by Moschus's companion Sophronius contains an account of a voyage to Cornwall, while the Book of Leinster, which uh, remembers the feast day of the seven Egyptian monks buried in Desert Uleg. So there's are, is a record of seven Egyptian monks actually being buried in an Irish monastery at this period. There are more uh, inexplicable analogies. The style of crowns, sorry, the style of the cells, these little beehive cells, are exactly on the Egyptian model. Um, the Celtic and the Egyptian bishops wear crowns rather than mitres. They both use um, bells and flabella, these kind of uh, holy fans, which are only found in the two churches. Moreover, the Book of Antiphons of the Monastery of Bangor says quite clearly, this house full of delights was built on rock and the true vine coming out of Egypt. To see the grimmer side of the Coptic coin, you must follow Moscus up the, up the Nile and visit the monastic centres of Upper Egypt, and in particular to the area around Asyut. Uh, one of the worst outrages against Coptic monks took place when I was in Cairo, when the fundamentalists attacked the monastery of Deir al-Muharraq. I decided to finish my pilgrimage by going there and seeing what had happened. Um, when he set off from Cairo, initially it's very peaceful. You pass these lovely villages on the side of the Nile with groups of men sitting under vine trellising and smoking in their hubble bubbles, women washing clothes by the canal, fat shakes in dirty blue shifts, you know, ambling along on frail-looking donkeys. But by the time you get about 100 miles south of Cairo, things begin to get more worrying. At Minya, we pass began to pass regular police checkpoints on the road, at first every 10 kilometres or so, then more frequently. 
By the time we got to the town of Malawi, the police were everywhere. There were sandbag emplacements on the rooftops. Brick fortifications guarded the police stations. Uh, and much of the local population seemed to have been issued with assault rifles, which they carried as they inspected their fields or drove into town to go shopping. And barrels of the Kalashnikovs poking out of their car windows as they drove. We were made to stop and wait for an escort. Um, we expected a single old conscript with a, you know, an ancient old gun. What we got, rather alarmingly, were eight heavily armed paramilitaries uh, in a souped-up Japanese pickup, all armed with Kalashnikovs, and with which we had to struggle to keep up. Every time we neared a village, the driver would increase his speed, and while the one guard would, uh, while the guards would load their rifles, balance on the back flap, and search the rooftop for snipers. Before long, we reached Sanabu, which the Gamat al-Islamiyah had attacked two years before initiating the current militant campaign. On that occasion, three convoys of guerrillas had swooped down one early morning on a Coptic Christian hamlet. By the time they withdrew, 12 Copts had been hunted down and murdered in their fields. The Coptic high school headmaster had been shot dead in front of his pupils, and a Coptic doctor had been riddled with bullets as he opened his surgery. From Sanabu, we went on to Darul Muharraq, which was the monastery which had been attacked a week earlier. Um, the burnt monastery is said to have marked the resting place of the Holy Family when they um, fled to Egypt. But six days before our visit, it had been famous for a less salubrious event. Three monks and two laymen had been shot outside the monastery wall um, when they'd come to talk about getting married in the monastery. I asked the monks, do none of the monks want to move to a safer area, if only for the time being? No, said the uh, monk who showed us round, Amba Beman. This is a holy place for us. There have been Christians here since the Holy Family took shelter from King Herod. In the dreams of some of the fathers, the Holy Family is still seen wandering around here. As monks, we should overcome evil, not let evil overcome us. This is a place of visions. We cannot ever leave it. And that attitude is typical of the whole Eastern Christian world. Despite it, though, um, it is nearing its end. There's maybe five years left for the Syriacs in eastern Turkey. Maybe 15 to 20 years for the Palestinian Christians. Egypt, no doubt the monasteries will last longer because the sheer number of um, cops still left there. But in the long term, their prospects are pretty grim, particularly with the growth of uh, ultra-militant Islam in the south. When I started the journey, I assumed that the causes of the flight would basically boil down to the rise of Islamic fundamentalism in the area, but it was much, much more complicated than that, and it's much more um, interesting. There's a great variety in the causes which have caused the flight of the Eastern Christians. In Istanbul, the uh, Christians being, uh, the problem is nationalism. The Greeks and Turks don't get on, and so the Greeks are leaving. In Syria, um, the Christians are all right because Assad is a uh, Alawite. He's from a minority and he effectively rules through a coalition of minorities. So the Christians have a privileged position in Syria. In Lebanon, the Maronites lost the civil war, uh, which they partly helped bring about through their own intransigence. They are now immigrating. In Israel and the West Bank, the problem again isn't so much that the Palestinian Christians are Christian, but that they're Palestinians. Uh, they're Arabs in a Jewish state, and so they're in the way of Zionism. Only in Egypt is it a straight case of fundamentalism attacking uh, a plucky little Christian minority. So it's a very, very complicated um, situation. Uh, there are lots of shades of grey. Anyway, it's getting late. 
at Daryl Maharak, the sun was sinking low, and our escort was urging us to hurry up. He said he didn't want to be on the roads after dark. But before we left, Amber Beman insisted on taking us into the inner courtyard to show us the keep built by the Byzantine Emperor Zeno in the 6th century AD. Uh, it had been built then to defend the monks against the uh, Bedouin raids of that period. You see, said Father Amber Meman, our cops, us cops have always been attacked for our faith. And you know, compared to some of those attacks, this present trouble is nothing. I said, well, when was this trouble? He said, oh, not so long ago, he said, during the persecution of the Roman Emperor Diocletian, for instance. Now, that was serious trouble for the cops. <laughs> Thank you very much.